This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, A People's History premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. Today, the inside story of Clarence Thomas's path to power. As controversy swirls around revelations of gifts to Thomas, we'll speak with award-winning filmmaker Michael Kirk, director and producer of the Frontline documentary Clarence and Jenny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court. Also, if it seems like your seasonal allergies are getting worse over time, you're probably not wrong. Today, writer and medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail tells us that allergies have risen dramatically in recent years, both in the U.S. and around the world. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. And jazz critic Kevin Whitehead reviews Arturo O'Farrell's new album, Legacies. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, A People's History tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is the most senior member of the conservative supermajority that now dominates the court, giving him a level of influence he'd never seen in his 32 years as an associate justice. But controversy has swirled around Thomas and his wife Jenny in recent weeks with revelations by the investigative news site ProPublica that a conservative Texas billionaire has lavished Thomas with expensive vacations and other financial benefits for many years, Benefits that were never reported on Thomas's financial disclosure forms. Those benefits included trips on private jets and a luxury yacht, the purchase of and renovations to the home Clarence Thomas's mother lives in, and private school tuition for a grandnephew of Clarence Thomas. Our guest today is veteran filmmaker Michael Kirk, who's the director, co-writer, and co-producer of a new frontline documentary about the lives and formative influences on Clarence and Jenny Thomas, and their paths to power in Washington. Michael Kirk was the original senior producer of the PBS Frontline documentary series in the 1980s. He's written and directed more than 100 hours of Frontline documentaries and has won four Peabody Awards, four DuPont Columbia Awards, two George Polk Awards, and 16 Emmy Awards. His new documentary, titled Clarence and Jenny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court is available to stream for free on YouTube, Frontline's website, and in the PBS app. Michael Kirk, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about, you know, the early life of Clarence Thomas. You know, it's hard to witness the hardship that he suffered as a child and not have some sympathy for him. He he was born in Pinpoint, Georgia. Tell us about the community and his relationship with his family in those early years. Pinpoint is on the outskirts of Savannah, Georgia. This is Savannah, Georgia in the 1950s as Clarence is growing up. Very Jim Crow South, very uh, racist undercurrents in everything Clarence would have done coming from Pinpoint into Savannah or even in Pinpoint, which was largely a fishing village. The vast majority of people there are black. They speak a kind of dialect of of people who were slaves that had slavery imposed on them uh, all those generations ago. And it's a kind of dialect called Geechee uh, Gula, Gula Geechee. And it has a little bit of a French flavor, almost like Creole down in Louisiana. Uh, 
he lived about the worst kind of life you could imagine for a little kid, even in that time. Poverty, a father who was gone, so a fatherless life. Mother barely scraping by, not even really in lots of ways. And Clarence and his little brother were that lived in just the way Clarence describes it in his book, which we use sections from, it's just horrible. Um, no running water, no toilet in the in the place they lived. And on top of the Jim Crow parts of the white racism, there was also, as we discovered, kind of to my surprise, uh, this idea that his friends talk about the idea of racism inside the black community as being even more corrosive than uh, white racism in the on the streets of Savannah, because you could avoid it if you didn't go into Savannah. But in your neighborhood, if you were very black, uh, and as he describes himself, with a broad nose and uh, curly hair, you were subject to uh, failing what they called the brown bag test. And the kids just mocked him with the cruelest insult they could come up with, which was ABC, America's Blackest Child. So at some point, you report that his mom gave the boys up. She simply couldn't manage it. And they went to live with their grandfather, also in Savannah, who was less poor, but it was a hard life in other ways. Tell us about that. Her father was a tough guy, also carried a lot of the racism about uh, the internal racism inside the black world of Savannah and Pinpoint. Uh, ran a fuel oil business, and I think ice and coal kind of business, where in the summer you deliver ice and in the winter you deliver fuel oil in a kind of old truck. And um, he made a pretty good living compared to a lot of other people. Uh, as I say, very opinionated, strong Catholic, stern Catholic, uh, didn't want the boys, didn't want his daughter to bring the boys there, but his wife at the time, not uh, Clarence's mom's mother or their natural, their biological grandmother, but that woman uh, that was married to Clarence's grandfather really wanted the kids, and uh, and they gave them something the kids had never really had, running water. They could take a bath, they could use a toilet, and they could go to public school in the neighborhood. So had to do a lot of work for his grandfather, had to toe the line, but at the, at the same time had at least the basics of, uh, of what the rest of us would recognize as a, as a life and a lifestyle that involved food and sleep and shelter, and if not love. So he ends up going to a high school seminary um, where he lived in a dormitory uh, where uh, there were only two black students. The rest of them were white. He was, had ambit ambitions to become a priest. Was that the plan? Well, uh, the nuns were the ones who thought they saw that spark. One of the things I learned from going to Catholic school and being from a Catholic family in a kind of rural area was every family was looking for a vocation in their family. And you'd pray, in my family, we'd pray after dinner for a, for a vocation in, among my brothers and me. Uh, and, in, and in Clarence's world, the nuns were looking for the first black priest uh, for Savannah and uh, Clarence got the, the seal of approval from Sister Mary Virgilius and others. This was going to be, and they told him this, and they told everybody this, this was going to be the first black priest, and his name was going to be Clarence Thomas. And so living in this dormitory with a bunch of white boys, um, it's kind of an unusual arrangement for, for kids back in the 50s. What was that experience like for him? He had never really been around white people in this way, in the sense that you're sleeping in a room with 20 others or 15 others or maybe more, uh, eating together, uh, hanging around. Uh, uh, Clarence didn't exactly have a plethora of, of social skills and was mocked and ridiculed. And uh, all you have to do is look closely at the pictures that we've found of him in classes and at the seminary and as a, as a little child. And he has this pained look. Some of it is from that dialect accent he had. Some of it is because he's the only black student there and this is the racist 
deep south in the uh, in the in the late 1950s, early 60s, uh, all the way through that very uh, the, the rise of the civil rights movement uh, in the South. All of that is happening around him, and Clarence is not smiling in virtually any of those pictures. And he is the subject of derision and mocking and uh, taunts at night. Clarence smiles so we can see you. Certainly didn't surprise me to hear the darkest racial names you could imagine called out to him all night long to keep him awake. Uh, and then there was one critical moment when Clarence knew, okay, I've got to get out of here. And uh, and that was the assassination, the murder of Martin Luther King, when he heard a white seminarian say uh, King had not been uh, murdered, had not died yet. And the seminarian said, I hope the SOB dies. And for Clarence, uh, that was the high school student Clarence, that was the final straw. Mm. So he left the seminary and went back to live with his grandfather, who did not particularly welcome that decision. He basically told him to go back out the door. He was not welcome there. Uh, his feelings and his, I think, probably, I, I, I hate to get in his grandfather's head, but I, I, others talk about it in a way that it was that he was so proud that Clarence might end up being the black priest of Savannah. And when Clarence didn't cut it, well, that was against the rules as far as his grandfather was concerned. You always cut it when the going gets rough, the rough get going, or the tough gets going, or whatever the saying is. That was certainly the way he felt, and he he felt that uh, Clarence had betrayed him. and, and had, Basically, he said to Clarence, you're going to end up just like your no-good father. You're, you're, you're no good at school. You can't finish anything. Uh, uh, go out and go out and feel what it's like to be out in the world alone. And so, uh, you know, in his teens, Clarence Thomas uh, can't live with his mom and is out on his own to find ways to make a living, to eat, to find a meal, to find a flush toilet again. All the things that uh, Clarence uh, Thomas had become kind of used to, he now uh, had to start over. It was back at zero, and he was a teenager and his grandfather, and he never really mended that breach after that. We need to take a break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Michael Kirk. He is an award-winning filmmaker. His documentary, Clarence and Jenny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court, is available for streaming on YouTube, Frontline's website, and in the PBS app. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK4-6 proteins. But what if blocking those proteins and stopping runaway cell division was possible? Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana-Farber's momentum of discovery keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Our guest is veteran filmmaker Michael Kirk, whose latest work is a PBS Frontline documentary about the lives and influences on U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and his wife Jenny, a conservative political activist. So Clarence Thomas eventually gets a scholarship to Holy Cross College in Massachusetts. And there he becomes um, 
he, he becomes a militant activist. I mean, he was very, very troubled by the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, which occurred a few months after the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, how, what, what shape did his activism take? So here's a guy who never really has hung out with uh, a group of like-minded, maybe even uh, open-minded black kids his age. And he goes off to Holy Cross, and there's 2,000 white kids, all Catholics, and 28 black students, the first kind of real class or among the first classes of affirmative action class at uh, Holy Cross, then it was an idea sort of sweeping the country at the time. This is 1968, 1969. Clarence sees the 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 explosion in the streets, the fights that are happening about the war in Vietnam, the fights that are happening around the civil rights crisis, the the murders of Bobby Kennedy and, and uh, Martin Luther King. And he, there he is living with all these other angry uh, and uh, frustrated, uh, self-described angry and frustrated uh, black men, uh, three or four of whom we've interviewed. Uh, and and in that process, Clarence really finds an identity, and the identity is the the Black Panther movement. Uh, he adopts the clothing, the hairstyle, the combat boots, the you know the military style uniform, wears a beret, uh, and finds an idol, and the idol turns out to be Malcolm X, and it is uh, Malcolm. Malcolm's speeches, Malcolm's arguments for separatism, um, Malcolm's stridence and, uh, and, and strength that Clarence is drawn to. He, the way he tells the story or the way people who know him tell the story is that Clarence decides to memorize many of uh, Malcolm's speeches and is himself uh, a self, sort of self-styled campus radical. Uh, uh, believing, uh, I think that he, there were, this was a way to uh, fix the world. That he had, he would find acceptance in the uh, anti-war uh, uh, and pro-civil rights movements. In in his junior year at Holy Cross, Clarence Thomas went to a protest in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard students were protesting at the time. Um, it got pretty lively. What happened and what was the effect? He uh, and some of his uh, friends from their group at Holy Cross drove the 40 miles down to Harvard Square, uh, and drank a lot of beer, I joined a march. There's 31 colleges and universities in Massachusetts, so there are a lot of people on the streets that night uh, marching toward Harvard Square from Boston Common. And um, and it all got out of control. Or it was glass broke, then arguments with the police, then tear gas, then the usual melees. But much on a much larger scale than anybody expected that it happened, certainly previously. And while those kind of things were breaking out every night, Clarence leaves uh, Cambridge at four in the morning, gets back to campus, and has a kind of epiphany where he says to himself, uh, at least in his book, this is what he reports, uh, he says to himself, well, why was I doing that? What was I doing? I came so close to being arrested. I think 40 students had been arrested, so close to ruining my life. Uh, and for what? Uh, so he has this kind of crisis. Uh, uh, and instead of, instead of becoming more radicalized, he decides to shed the panther the uniform, put on a coat and tie at times. Uh, you could find Clarence in the library, uh, not out on the, not on the, on the streets or, or anything like that. And, uh, he finishes, uh, uh, uh college, uh, near the top of his class, uh, with a 3.75 grade point. He's, he's obviously a super bright guy. He applies himself and, and, and does very, very well. Uh, and uh, manages to graduate from uh, Holy Cross, the first person in his family to do so. And his grandfather, of course, does not come to the ceremony. Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty radical turn to go from somebody who's wearing, you know, fatigues and army books and, and has a poster of Malcolm X in his room to 
buckling down and being a more conventional student. Did did you talk to folks or did you get insights from Thomas's book about whether he he changed his thinking about about the United States and race relations and you know the big issues that had radicalized him? The people we talked to, one of them, a friend of uh, Clarence Thomas, Glenn Lowry, also a, a black academic and a very well-known uh, speaker and a conservative uh, black man, uh, Glenn Lowry, uh, one of the things that Glenn says is it's very hard to, to fix an ideology to Clarence Thomas, and it was equally hard then, or this is just a, another great example of of it, it's 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 almost an ideology-free zone around him. You never, you you go back if you're a filmmaker or a biographer or a friend, and you go back and look at Clarence Thomas's um, uh, things he said and things he acted on, uh, looking for a political hints of a political ideology, and it is a very 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 complicated and and not strongly articulated by uh, Thomas in terms of why does he move away from the idea of separatism and other stalwart uh, phrases or, or longstanding phrases of, uh, of a lot of the black radicals at the time. He was there, but not really there, thinking about it, uh, defending it, but not really. But one thing was becoming obvious, he was not happy about the implications of affirmative action. And it was among the first times that uh, and he would, of course, throughout his life, be a um, recipient, a beneficiary of what, what became known as affirmative action. But at the time, he the first strong feelings of, uh, do I belong here? Why am I here? Am I here for merit or am I here only because I'm black? And if so, will I spend the rest of my life with an asterisk next to my name that says, early beneficiary of, uh, you know, affirmative action. So, so his objection to affirmative action was that he was perceived as someone who didn't earn his way, right? That he was getting preferential treatment? Even though he demonstrated that he had earned his way with his grades and his hard work, so you can posit a theory that he decides, I'm, I'm going to go out and make contribution after the, the so-called riot in Harvard Square, uh, is it possible that he went back to uh, went back to school and said to himself, "I, you know, that 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 was a that was a no win deal for me. I I want to make my name. I want to make a contribution. I want to do something, and I want to prove that I belong in in this world." And I think that is a sort of strain of Clarence Thomas, which is an ambition that uh, that, that that grows out of uh, such a strong desire to find acceptance and to, in a way, live down the challenge his grandfather gave him when he said, you're just like you're no good dad, you're never going to amount to anything. I think if there was an ideology for Clarence Thomas around that time, it might not be political, but it certainly was uh, a mixture of ambition and revenge. So Clarence Thomas gets a scholarship to Yale Law School, an elite institution with a lot of very strong traditions, one of very, you know, a, a smattering of black students there. How does he fit in? What is life like for him? I think he really is surprised that, uh, I mean, he thinks what he's getting is a is a ticket to ride. You get, you get a law degree from Yale, you're going to become a big time lawyer in New York City on Wall Street and make a lot of money. That was his ambition, that was his reason for doing it, and that was his expectation. Uh, he was surprised by what it was like to be there. You're surrounded by one of his his married student housing roommate was John Bolton. Uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton were one class ahead of him, but in a lot of his classes. As Bolton tells us, uh, it was a place where people expected to run the world someday, and they were just there uh, gathering whatever they needed to do that. Well, that was certainly not the case for Clarence Thomas, and he was heartbroken when he discovered once again, uh, so obviously to him, that the students uh, did not uh, believe that he belonged there because of uh, affirmative action. And in some cases, even the professors uh, thought he was gonna, getting a free pass. Uh, he basically never talked in classes or anything like that. He was, he was uh, in some form of shell shock uh, during, the, during his years at Yale Law School. 
And at the end, when folks were getting you know invitations to to join, you know, uh, as associates in big law firms, he didn't get offers. And you report that he kept these rejection letters. What as kind of a motivation? Exactly. I mean, even today, this is a man who, for whom revenge is, is one response to uh, the lack of acceptance of him and his efforts. So yes, when he doesn't, uh, he arrives at what he thinks of as the pinnacle. He graduates from Yale Law School uh, and he realizes it's not going to yield any kind of a job that he had aspirations for. He says uh, he he has the the degree, the Yale Law School degree framed with a 10 cent price, one of those stickers that says 10 cents, and he stuck it on the diploma frame and, and said, that's basically what that Yale Law School degree was worth to me. Hmm. Well, Michael Kirk, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you. Michael Kirk is an award-winning filmmaker. His documentary, Clarence and Jenny Thomas, Politics, Power, and the Supreme Court, is available to stream for free on YouTube, Frontline's website, and in the PBS app. Cuban-Mexican-American Arturo O'Farrell has led New York's acclaimed Afro-Latin jazz orchestra for two decades. Before that, he'd run the Latin big band of his father, composer Chico O'Farrell. Back when Arturo started out, he just wanted to be a jazz pianist. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says his album puts piano in the foreground. Arturo O'Farrell on the 1935 tune Obsession, written by the great Puerto Rican bolero composer Pedro Flores while he was living in New York. On one level, O'Farrell's new trio and solo album Legacies is about intersections of jazz and Latin Caribbean musics that reach back nearly a century. Like so many before him, the pianist steers between formal Cuban dance syncopations and jazz's spontaneous liberties with a beat. Pianist Arturo O'Farrell, with his son Zach O'Farrell on drums, who, like his father, caught the jazz bug early. When Arturo was 19, composer Carla Blay heard him playing a bar gig and drafted him into her 1980s big band. He plays one of her elegantly simple ballads from that period. Its Norwegian title translates as Development Song. Arturo O'Farrell shows commendable restraint there, but he goes the other way, playing Thelonious Monk's Well You Needn't as a solo. Monk was a less is more type guy, but his interpreters don't have to be. O'Farrell is an orchestra leader. He likes big gestures and a busy sound. But sometimes he'll get so swept up in the moment, he forgets to come up for air. Even non-horn players need to take breath pauses.
Farrell balances freedom and discipline, covering a 1951 tune where pianist Bud Powell made his Afro-Cuban influences clear, from Max Roach's Cowbell to its Spanish title, Un Poco Loco. O'Farrell really flies on his version. All that history he knows doesn't weigh him down. Liani Mateo is on bass. She also plays in Arturo's Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra. there on the solo pieces, Arturo O'Farro nods to Jelly Roll Morton, who encouraged Latin influences in jazz, and hints at limber, early jazz stride piano. One of the solo ballads is Pure Emotion by Arturo's bandleader father, Chico O'Farro. So, counting drummer Zach, three generations of O'Farrells are represented on the album Legacies, reminding us what tradition is at heart. Our ongoing conversation with those who came before us and those who come after. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film. He reviewed Legacies, the new album by Arturo O'Farrell. Coming up, we talk about allergies with medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy explains how Betterment's technology helps investors better understand and save on taxes. So taxes are a real cost of investing, as are fees. Understanding your after-tax, after-fee returns is really what's important for investors. An example would be when you buy and sell Uh, securities frequently, you can pay a lot of taxes because short-term capital gains, meaning I bought it and I sold it fairly quickly, have higher taxes than long-term capital gains. Our technology in particular will tell you what the tax implication of a particular move you'd like to make is going to be before you make that move so that you're making it with full transparency. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. When my guest, author and medical anthropologist Teresa McPhail, finished researching and writing her new book, she made some lifestyle changes. She stopped taking daily showers and changing her sheets as often, along with eating more natural food and making sure to get enough sleep and exercise. Her book is about allergies, which are a growing challenge for humanity as our environment changes. In the U.S., nut allergies in children, hospital admissions for asthma, and prescriptions for EpiPens, which treat extreme allergic reactions, have all tripled in recent years. Estimates are that 30 to 40 percent of the world's population now have some form of allergy. 
Some allergic reactions are a nuisance, the congestion and burning eyes that come with a high pollen count, and some are deadly, like anaphylaxis that can follow a bee sting, something McPhail has had personal experience with in her own family. There are allergies to airborne irritants, food allergies, and skin allergies. McPhail found the causes of allergies to be complex and often misunderstood. For decades, they were thought to mainly afflict people who were nervous, anxious, or temperamental. While there's new science on the causes of allergic reactions, effective treatments are hard to come by and expensive when one shows promise. Teresa McPhail is an associate professor of science and technology studies at Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. She researches and writes about global health, biomedicine, and disease. She holds a Ph.D. in medical anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of California, San Francisco. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Teresa McPhail, welcome to Fresh Air. Hi, thanks for having me. Speaking generally, um, allergic reactions are a product of our immune system, right? I mean, what do we know about why our immune system, which protects us from disease, sometimes reacts to bodies in a way that you know gives us these troubling symptoms? It's a really interesting question. I think a lot of people in general are confused about what an allergy really is and what a sensitivity is or an intolerance is. And the basic difference is, is that your body can react to a whole host of things and the symptoms can be similar. But with an allergy, it's really triggering your immune system itself. So your immune cells, there are, you know, billions in your body. They're reacting to foreign objects that it comes into contact with. So that can be anything from a tree pollen to a dust mite. And their jobs are basically, we've we've heard that they're like police officers. I prefer to think of them as bouncers or curators. (laughs) (laughs) Their job is to kind of scan the crowd and and make split-second decisions about whether or not that thing is okay to hang out or can become a part of us in the case of food or needs to go in the case of a virus. And then what happens when pollen comes in, for example, or ragweed? Or... The way I like to think of it is an allergic reaction is usually driven by a class of antibodies called IgE. And if you think of um, we usually hear about T cells, which those are the police officers of our body. They're constantly um, circulating and, and finding things in our body that shouldn't be there. So if a T cell comes into contact with an oak pollen, say, and it says, you know, I, I don't like the looks of this. It's got to go. It gives that information to a class of cells called B cells. And think of them as nightclub managers <laughs> in your body that on the street that the um, T cell is patrolling. And he shows a picture of this oak pollen and says, hey, I really don't like this guy. If you see him, you got to let me know. Like, let's contact some people. We got to get it out. And so these B cells, who are like these nightclub managers, basically they go to Ig. They produce cells called IgE or little proteins, Y-shaped proteins, and those are like the bouncers. But if you like to think of this metaphor as in like every IgE is unique to the perp. So at the nightclub entrance, you've got a bouncer there ready to spot oak pollen, but you've got 50 bouncers at the door all looking for specific things. And so when they see it or something similar to it, they send out the signal. So they alert all of the other immune cells that something's up, you got to come and take care of this guy. So that's basically going on in your body all the time. So the things can either stay have a great dance party in the club with all of your cells, or they've got to go. But you can already see the problems because, say, there's a guy who's 6'2 with brown hair. He might look similar to something else, and that antibody is still going to react to it. So that's why you get a lot of people who are allergic to one tree nut will be allergic to all of them, if that makes sense. It's because of the similarities in their protein. And once the bouncers take action, then we have a rumble and your eyes right. water and you sneeze or, <laughs> yes. or your skin breaks out or something worse. Yeah, it's not a very fun nightclub to be in after that. Um, 
There are interesting theories that that help or that may help explain why we see so many more allergies in the United States and around the world. One of them, you say, is the hygiene hypothesis. We're just too darn clean. Um, what's going on here? <laughs> right. The hygiene hypothesis, if you've heard about it, you've probably heard that we don't let kids eat enough dirt. They don't play in enough dirt. They're not around enough germs. And that's that's part of it. So what ended up happening is in the 1970s, this British researcher did a metadata study. So he kind of looked at at all the factors involved in developing an allergy. And what he found was that in families that had multiple children, you tended to have the youngest children had much lower rates of allergic disease. And so he posited that that was probably because they had older siblings who got sick a lot. And so they would bring home all of these bacteria and viruses, and the littlest ones would be exposed to a whole bevy of things that maybe the eldest didn't have um, the same exposures to. And so that there was something about this. There was something about being the youngest that was protective. And in fact, we have seen um, that people who send their children to daycare centers, there's something about being in a daycare center that is also protective. And it's probably the same theory that you're just getting exposed to more germs on a day-to-day -day basis. And that at a young age, that's actually helpful because it helps to train your immune system and so it's not going to be oversensitive when the, the kid gets a little bit older. Yeah, this is interesting. So our immune system kind of needs to learn the neighborhood. It needs to, I mean, it, to distinguish, get to know the various antigens and either how to handle them or, or how not to worry about them. I don't know. What, what, what happens here exactly? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the theory. It's um, – it's basically to go back to the the bouncer and the and the police officer. You're absolutely right. It's getting familiar with everything in your neighborhood. So it's your body learning. Oh, Bob just lives down the street. He's fine. I don't have to worry about Bob. And if you get that training prior to the age of three, there's something about that happens in early childhood development. By around three, your immune system is kind of set up. And it's very hard to change it after that point. But it's very malleable before that point, which is why early exposures to things seems to be so protective. So they, the landmark studies that support the gene hypothesis were done actually in Switzerland and Germany, where they found that um, children who were regularly exposed to dust in animal barns. And it's interesting because the animals seem to be a key component. So if you're living on a farm with livestock, you tend and and you're a baby and you're being carried by your mom in and out of this barn where there are pigs and cows and ducks and dogs and whatever, you tend to have very low rates of sensitization and allergic uh, response in those adults once they grow up. So there's something happening. And so the theory is, is it, it could be anything. It could be the allergens in the air mixed with certain types of bacteria that would be in a barn. But the animals do seem key. And I will say that if you grow up with a dog in particular, dogs seem to be protective. So people who grow up in a household with a dog also tend to have a slightly lower rate of allergies than people who grow up in a household without pets. All right. But you want that dog when the kids are little, Right. Right. I want to talk a little about treatments. Um, you know, you say the most common treatment for typical respiratory allergens is simply avoidance, right? You know, keep an eye on the pollen count, try and avoid it. Um, beyond that, you say, you know, thorough household cleaning uh, is something that is done, you know, washing all of the bedding, you know, some showering as soon as you come home on a, on a day when the pollen count is high. That would seem to contradict the earlier advice about, you know— um, tolerating, uh, uh, you know, the microbes around us. Right. But in, if you wash right when you come in during the pollen season, you're getting the pollen off of your body. You're basically coated in pollen. If I take a walk through Central Park right now, 
um, and I come in, I'm, I'm coated in, in multitudes of pollen. So just getting that off of you, if you happen to be pollen allergic, is a great idea. The treatments that we have for allergy are not great until recently. Um, they've been the same for approximately 200 years. <laughs> there hasn't been much advancement in um, allergy treatments. And avoidance or stopping the reaction before it even starts is the gold standard. So, But that's increasingly difficult. Like, where are you supposed to go if you're allergic to tree pollen? I mean, you, I guess you could move to the desert. But even as I discovered when I was researching this book, the desert, it, they have their own problems right now. I mean, Bermuda grasses and, and certain trees that we've imported into the desert. So there really isn't anywhere to go to escape some of our um, allergy problems or our allergens. Yeah, plus we love trees. Um, you, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I know. I don't want to sound like I'm down with trees. Yeah. <laughs> I love trees. <laughs> Somebody pointed out that, that, that in some cases, municipalities, when they import and plant trees, will plant all, do I have this right, all male trees, and this can create a problem? Do you, are you aware of this? Yes. So because female trees... Uh, they tend to be messier. So they have, you know, seeds falling and things like that. So they're harder to clean up after. And so for years it was thought, oh, well, let's just have the trees that don't don't have that problem, except that they're pumping out pollen to pollinate the female trees. (laughs) And so you accidentally got this imbalance of pollen-producing trees that I, I'm not actually sure. One of the most interesting things is that I couldn't get anyone from any parks department to talk to me. I Because I wanted to know, do you still plant the same way? Like if you're planting trees now, I, I constantly am, am seeing new trees being planted in my neighborhood. And I want to know, are these trees that produce a lot of pollen? Like, have you thought about that? And And I couldn't get anyone on the phone. So I have no idea if we're still making the same mistakes. Probably yes. Um, a few other things I wanted to get to. Um, you know, seasonal allergies can be annoying. Um, but are there long-term effects from dealing with them or treating them, you know, year in, year out? Yeah. I One of the most interesting things when I was researching this book is so I would ask to talk to regular people about their allergies. And everyone – initially was like, why do you want to talk to me about my hay fever? That's so weird. And I was like, well, I want to understand how you live your life with it. And it was almost like being a priest, because once they got talking, it was like I was in a confessional booth. And these things really do affect the quality of people's lives. I That is something that I absolutely learned in the five years I was researching this book. It doesn't matter if it's a mild allergy to a severe allergy. Everyone's basic quality of life suffers when they have an allergy. You're spending, first of all, you're spending a lot of money on treatments. So you're taking Zyrtec or whatever you're taking, your antihistamines. You're buying them. You're taking them on a regular basis. You're buying air purifiers. You're doing all of these things. You're buying allergy-free foods. If you've got food allergies, you're spending a lot of money. The second thing is, is you just don't feel well. You don't feel at your best. So most people with mild allergies don't sleep well. So their sleep is affected, which means they're not as productive. Their mental health suffers. Like most people with um, a moderate allergy have some form of depression or anxiety. We can say that that's correlation and not causation, but if you're constantly lacking sleep and you're constantly not feeling your best, that it takes a toll after a certain amount of time. And, and does it does it um, grind down the body in any way in, in any way physical physically or or do absolutely? I mean, people that have allergies, um, seasonal allergies, especially. You're more likely to get sick because think of it as, um, say you're at a gate at Yankee Stadium and your immune cells, like we're back to the bouncers. The bouncers are there. Everybody's there trying to stop viruses from coming in. If you're being, if millions of oak pollen 
particles are trying to come in and you're you're dealing with them, are you really going to spot the SARS-CoV virus when it comes in? No. Your immune system is distracted. It it's it can only do so much. And so if it's busy responding to one thing, it could lead to you missing something else. So we really want healthy immune systems. That being said, I will say a little positive. There's not much positive here. <laughs> I One of the things I'm really aware of is when I talk, it it's, can sound pretty depressing, but um, people with allergies, actually, you should feel happy because your immune systems are strong and functioning. And it turns out that um, people with allergies actually can have lower levels of certain cancers like gliomas, partially because your immune system is so strong and it's on the alert. So there's downsides, but there's a small upside. Well, Teresa McPhail, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Teresa McPhail is a medical anthropologist who writes about global health, biomedicine, and disease. Her new book is Allergic, Our Irritated Bodies in a Changing World. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering help from Julian Hertzfeld. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Rigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Fresh Air's co-host, Tanya Mosley, I'm Dave Davies. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality, join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app.